the path doesn't have to be straight. We have a lot more information that we Value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome back to We Get Real AF, where we explore topics in frontier tech with amazing women. Anyone who knows Vanessa and me knows that we love fashion. However, the fashion industry is one of the most wasteful and pollution-generating industries on the planet. Every year, people return about $550 billion worth of clothes because they don't fit properly. And that will only increase in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic as more people shift to online shopping. And here's another sobering statistic. Three-fifths of all clothing manufactured around the world ends up in landfills. So can technology help us access the fashion we love and also reduce pollution and waste? That's the question we're tackling today with our awesome Boss Babe guest, Jessica Couch, fashion tech expert, supply chain activist, and CEO of Luxor & Finch. Welcome, Jessica. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. We are so excited to have you. And before we dive into how to fix the fashion industry, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Absolutely. So I've probably been in this industry now for about, I want to say, 10 to 12 years um, working professionally. I got my undergraduate degree from NC State right before, um, I guess, the first economic crash. Um, I studied fashion product development. I spent time as an entrepreneur having an online store. Um, Luxor and Finch was originally a contemporary women's online store that was based out of North Carolina. And um, I learned a lot from that experience about fit and some of the issues. Just like many people in fashion, I started off working for, I mean, working in retail. So I got my start in Nordstrom and When I was an entrepreneur, I kind of used all of my skills that I had learned in Nordstrom to develop my own ways of doing business. And that is how I learned that fit was a big deal. And what I wanted to do was kind of test if it was just an issue with my small store or if it was going to be an issue with other brands and retailers in bigger cities that had um, larger inventory. And so I spent some time in New York kind of um, trying to discover an answer to that question. And that is how how I discovered that the industry was not ready to address the fit problem, but that fit was a huge deal. So in about um, 2013 is when I discovered that. I was working for Tracy Reese in New York, and I was also working as a stylist. And I realized like, hey, technology could help to alleviate a lot of these pain points that we're seeing when it comes to fit or people buying things online or anything like that. And um, at the time, there wasn't a lot of literature available on it. And a lot of brands were not focusing on the fact that fit was connected to maybe low conversions or returns or dead inventory. So um, I went and got my master's from Cornell, where they allowed me to put together my own curriculum. And that was super exciting. I studied under Susan P. Ashdown, and she is like the authority of anything fit. She's written over 250 articles, and, and she's been in numerous journals just about her work in fit research and how important it is. So doing that really kind of took my career on another path. And that is how I started consulting. And so that's how I kind of got into this. And 
it's also personal for me. I'm 5'10", and I've always been kind of on the thicker side. I'm Southern. And trying to buy things off the rack has probably been the most difficult thing in the world. And so much of what I wear matters to my how I feel in my everyday. So this has always been like a personal vendetta, but also a way to help brands and help resolve some of fashion's extremely terrible waste practices. Could you talk a little bit about why the fashion industry hasn't caught up or caught on to this? Like to me, it seems really obvious that everybody has different body types. And Absolutely. is it because the technology didn't exist before now? What What's the disconnect? Yeah, I think the answer to that is complex. So initially, just how the fashion industry works, you have these houses and these um, brands that kind of dictate what's going to be bought, what's going to be sold, what's the style and what's the trend. So these brands originally were only for a small percentage of the population. And with globalization and just people having more access to capital, now everyone in the world can afford to buy and shop. But we didn't really change our practices to kind of um, support that. So when, right now we're in a very consumer-centric economy where it's not the brands, it's not these fashion houses, it's not Versace telling us, hey, this is the trend. It's people demanding, this is what we want to see. We want more comfortable clothing. So here comes athleisure. You know, we want, you know, functional apparel. We want this, we want better fitting bras. And what's happening is that brands and retailers have to be responsive to that. And traditionally, how fashion is set up in a lot of these businesses, they don't have the agility to be as responsive to the demands of the consumer in a way that is responsible and is progressive. So, for instance, one of the ways that fashion thought they were being responsive was fast fashion. Like, okay, people want styles. Let's give them cheap, terrible polyester clothing. We'll throw it at them. And every couple of weeks, you can go into a store and you can get something for $5. Well, that was a disaster. Because it only focused on one of the problems that the consumer was having was access to more trends and, and trendier clothing. And also, another part of the problem is fashion doesn't have research and development. There are no R&D departments in any fashion house or brand. And that is super imperative when it comes to being innovative as well as being sustainable. So now we have a consumer-centric economy, brands that are not agile enough or flexible enough to kind of respond to that. We have these very antiquated supply chains that where your manufacturers have all the power. They're not very flexible in how they want to produce. They're not really going to listen to you. And it's cheaper for you to just say, listen, if we make one pattern for this body type, it costs us way less money. We can just sell it and we'll force people to buy it. That was working when the only place you had to shop was shopping malls. That does not work now when we introduce hundreds of independent brands and the internet. And now that consumers have all these choices, you're not just going to pigeonhole them into you know, location or one product at a time. And what we're seeing is just the breakdown of antiquated supply chains, as well as the breakdown of antiquated thought processes in the fashion industry. And we're also noticing that people don't respond well to change. So take Victoria's Secrets. They had one job. That's just to find great fitting bras for women who have breasts. It is not hard. Breasts have been in existence for a long time. However, they didn't do the best job of pulling the right data from their consumers, 
listening to some of the problems that the consumers had, and then iterating on those problems by introducing new products. Because that would require a system that was circular, where you're listening, you're iterating, you're taking in information, and you're spitting back out product. And that just doesn't exist with traditional supply chains. So part of the problem was just, you know, we have all these traditional ways of doing things in fashion, and we're now moving into a non-traditional world where it's completely decentralized, where the consumer is king, and where the flexibility has to lie in the supply chain, and everyone's just like, oh, God, what do we do? <laughs> um, so one thing that floored me right off the bat, when you said that within the fashion industry at these fashion houses, there is no R&D. There yeah. is no R&D department. So what happened in the traditional method or supply chain of doing things, did people just start designing things like, oh, oh, this looks cool or this looks cute or whatever, and then put yeah. it out to market to see what sold and what didn't? Is that how it worked? Absolutely. Well, if we go all the way back, fashion is originally for a group of people who had a lot of money. So let's take it back to around the early 1900s where, you know, people were hiring tailors to make these beautiful outfits for people who could afford it. So the tailors would come in, they take your measurements, they give you stuff, you know, it takes a long time, you wear these garments and it's fantastic. Well, that process now gets reiterated across more and more people. However, What's not happening here is the realization that, hey, we're trying to mass market a product that's really only for one type of person because we're only using one fit model. We're not changing that. But that is the tradition that happens in fashion. You use a fit model. That fit model is normally very slender and she's tall and she's model-esque because if we think about also where the fashion industry was located in New York, you have models who were closely adjacent to these houses that were closely adjacent to the manufacturing process all right there. So everything was very much encapsulated, as was the process. So the issue really became, we're not realizing that at some point, everyone didn't mind squeezing themselves into whatever existed just because it was limited. It was very limited. And if you couldn't go to New York and see all the fabulous things, you just had to go to Belts or Dillard's or whoever, and you just worked it out. And people weren't happy with it, but people also didn't have choices and options as we do now. So now the consumer is just in a completely different place. And I think what brands are neglecting to do is just simply modify their processes to fit the modern consumer. And it sounds so simple, but when you go into these places... The number one thing that I've heard so much is we've been doing this for 20 years like this, and that is just what we do. And if we were to change this, we'd lose X amount of jobs because what would this person have to do now, even though that person's job is probably wasted? Or how would we mitigate this? And it's like, we cannot do what we've been doing for the last 20 years and be successful. But no one listened to that. And that is why we're seeing so many closures and so many bankrupt companies because they insisted on no we're not going to change. All we need to do is just market better. That's what's going to help us. More marketing dollars. I feel like um, there was a different industry. It was Blockbuster. <laughs> it exactly. went away because they were like, no, we are not going to evolve. And that's like, who is that? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think that 
fashion thinks that they, I, I think the fashion industry had a lot of people that were a part of this time where the catwalk was king and it was models and it was, you know, fabric and you're in New York and you're going to Paris, France, but that is not the industry that we live in today. You have manufacturers all over. It's a dirty, grimy business where we have so much waste and things just running off. And then you have to clothe millions and millions upon millions of people. Then you're introducing online shopping. It is just a mad time right now. And I don't think people are really understanding the strategy that they need to be successful in the future. Yeah. And I'd love to dive into that because how does technology address this? I mean, you obviously cannot make bespoke clothing for every single body type out there, right? But we can do better. So what does fit technology offer to these manufacturers if they're willing to, to try to think differently? Absolutely. So fit technology can be integrated throughout the supply chain. Um, I know about five years ago, we were really advocating for 3D design technology. And the reason why we were advocating for 3D design technology is because um, the fitting process with a brand was very antiquated. You'd have a model that would come in and everybody would fit a garment on her. They would take notes, they would make changes on that garment. And then you have to ship that product back to the manufacturer. And that takes days. It takes boxes. You, we have to redo the actual physical pattern. So now, you know, we're wasting paper. And then about a week later, we get the updated garment back and it could be wrong. It could be the wrong color. It could be the wrong size. And that's to be expected because there's a language barrier. So what 3D design technology did it eliminated all of that mess, right? So you never had to turn it into a paper pattern. You could literally take a 2D pattern that you'd virtually create it, drape it on a 3D body, and you could take the measurements from your fit model, create your own avatar, drape that product on it. So first of all, that decreases the amount of time that we have to schedule to have the fit model come in. It also decreases the amount of time we have to send a garment, a physical garment back and forth because we can clearly see it right here on the virtual body, how it's going to fit and what the problems are. We can also send those files in real time to the manufacturer who can then make those adjustments and understand exactly what you want without having to waste fabric or paper. So that's one way that fit technology is helpful. So if we even just think about that process, Let's say that now you're starting to understand because you have social media that your customers are shaped a certain way, or maybe they have a certain issue with your pants. Everyone's like, hey, these pants were out at the thigh after X amount of washes. What's going on? What you can do is then simulate some of the customers whose body types are different from your fit model. You can now take those body types and averages and create another avatar and really see where is the tension in this garment that's causing this trouble when we get to this certain size? Why is it that a woman of this height or this build is having these problems? Once you can see that visually, everybody on your team in real time can make those adjustments. So you can take a visual image of that. You can understand where the tension is. You can then make adjustments to the pattern digitally before you ever print it. Then you can make adjustments to the copy that you're going to put on your website. You can say, hey, let's let everybody know if you are wearing this denim, it's for this body type and here's what to expect. All of that information that's normally lost in that fitting process can now be moved through your supply chain just by implementing 3D design technology and a couple of things that can help create communication in these previously siloed departments. So that's just one example. On the customer facing side, fit technology can help to gather valuable customer information about what sizes they are buying, what sizes they are returning 
What brands do they love? What's in their closet? And brands and retailers can take that and make more personalized shopping experiences for their customers. Now, this could seem complicated, but when you have a dedicated team that's only caring about, hey, we know Susan comes in, she buys these jeans in a size 28 all the time. She's been doing that for the last five years. Here are five other products that are comparable to this denim in a different um, fabric. Here's another product that has the same kind of wash as it. Let's see if we can now give her products that are based on her preference and liking. Um, One of the things that we actually discuss a lot with brands is just the fact that fit is not just about anthropometric data. So it's not just about measurements alone. Because if it was just that, like you said, it still would be impossible to resolve because we can't make bespoke clothing for everybody. It's actually about understanding consumer preference. And consumer preference can be complicated, but you can always narrow it down based on the product. So for instance, um, when I did my thesis at Cornell, we realized that men buy denim for several different reasons. Some is just for functionality. Like I just want denim because I work in an industry that requires it or it's comfortable to me to send a third. The other type of person buys it for style. I like the newest denim because I love Japanese denim or I love these brands. They are not as concerned with fit, but they are concerned about you matching that product to their needs, which is, I just want the latest of whatever. And then you have people that are going to buy it because they are trying to fulfill some other type of need. So it could be price related, or it could be, hey, I just need a pair of black denim because I work in the restaurant, the satin, the third. By really understanding how to create your own consumer archetypes, you can understand how to meet meet each consumer's need and reduce those returns. That is a fit strategy that people often don't associate with fit because it's not as direct, but matching people to product is what fit technology is all about. Reducing those returns, understanding consumer archetypes, and then giving them the products that are best suited for their particular needs. Do you feel that social media has helped move the needle in that sense just because brands have been forced to have a presence and engage with their consumers? Um, And that way you get, like you said, people saying, hey, these pants after however many washes, I'm starting to see wear, or this didn't fit the way I thought it was going to, I'm sending it back or whatever. Do you think that that's what's helped push the needle and will continue to push the needle? I do because social media represents the voice of the consumer. And that is some of the most important pieces of data that brands need to collect on a consistent basis. And not just because of the reviews that you're kind of able to connect, whether collect, whether people, you know, review on purpose or not, because sometimes you just love something. So you want to talk about it. Sometimes you hate it. So you want to talk about it. But the, you know, having images of people and products and saying why they like it and all these YouTube hauls, these are so important for brands to understand why their consumers are interacting with their products in the same way. Because you think about it and before social media was a thing where brands were actually having a presence, this would happen in the fitting room. So you would have maybe a fitting room attendant potentially helping you or just collecting the clothes at the end of your session, trying everything on. So the brand wasn't actually getting that information firsthand. So you're absolutely right, especially with the halls on the video halls on YouTube. I am like, I swear by that. Well, and, you know, here's another thing, though, because is the consumer not part of this problem? Because. When I go on Instagram, for example, I follow other fashion influencers and they are constantly modeling the cheapest, 
quickest, cute outfit and variety is the name of the game. Like they have to keep churning out new content, new outfits, new looks. It's all inexpensive. It's all part of that fast fashion ecosystem that you're talking about. And if companies are trying to feed that appetite, how do they take a step back and focus on things like sustainability and really analyzing fit and doing things in a more rational way? Absolutely. That is a really great point. And this is also one of the things we try to help brands to do because the influencer marketing is such a waste of money when you don't do it correctly. And there are macro influencers and there's micro influencers. And there has been kind of a misunderstanding that an influencer can sell products, but they absolutely cannot. So it's not always a one-to-one conversion for a lot of these influencers, But what brands have to understand is who their actual influencer is. Your actual influencer might be a 45-year-old mom who wears these jeans and they completely understand, you know, the the cut of the denim, why it works for them. And they have a captivated audience who trusts them. Now, for everyone else, that's just not always the case. It's not always the teeny bopper or someone like that. However, brands have to have a strategy to differentiate that so that they can have a more successful way to understand how to use influencer marketing and these fashion halls and all those things that are important. With that being said, I just have to like touch on this slightly because we got on this conversation with another guest and I found it so interesting with the influencer situation where brands are now creating avatar influencers, I guess is the best way to put it. Virtual influencers. Like a virtual influencer. Like they would create like almost like a mascot, if you will, um, an animated person or someone that looks like a a real person through all of this AI stuff that we have now where it makes an image look like a real person, even though they don't exist. And that is the influencer. Have you heard about that? And do do you suggest the use of that with your brands that you work with? Yeah, I don't suggest that because I've done a lot of research to show that people do not like avatars. It's great for play and it's great for gaming. It's great for entertainment. It's not good for conversions. And I try to always only recommend things that work for conversions for brands. So when we've conducted studies on these, we've realized that people are not comfortable with trusting avatars for purchases. They like avatars to look at and the younger generation likes it just to kind of represent personality, but when it comes to actual conversions, they have no effect whatsoever. I believe that. I think Lil Mikhail is kind of creepy. <laughs> yeah. Me too. It's weird. <laughs> well, I just go back to authenticity and we got right. onto that topic too. And I just feel like I would relate more to like you said somebody in my age range that has a following on YouTube that, you know, trusted people comment, they get back to you on your questions. And, you know, you relate to that person because they are a real person living their own life. And they're just giving you their, their honest feedback on these products. And they might be getting them for free, but they're giving you their honest feedback. Um, I would take that before I took a virtual influencers opinion yeah. on them yeah. just because well, the brand is creating it for you exactly <laughs> anything that the brand creates I think we're gonna <laughs> be like a little uh, skeptical about but um, I also I want to again touch on sort of the appetite that the public has for constant new constant cute constant trendy be, and have you address if you would Jessica the sustainability issues that this ecosystem creates because I think 
very few people are really cognizant of how damaging fast fashion and mass production is to the environment um, and to the the communities that have to manufacture this th- these clothes and fit, feed yeah. this appetite. Yeah, I think we've done a very terrible job of creating a new type of consumer behavior that we actually cannot like support. Um, fast fashion is one of the most damaging things to our environment and the industry as a whole. Um, these cheap pieces of clothing that are worn once and then thrown away contributes to over 15 million tons of textile waste in the U.S. alone. And that is just really sad. What it also does is continue to create this behavior of not valuing products. And that is very dangerous because a $1 shirt um, is not of value to anyone and it costs to make. And we do understand that the people who are creating these products are not getting paid fair wages. So we have this issue across the entire supply chain now where it's just way too much waste. Luckily, one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was closing of stores, right? So people cannot go into stores and they're afraid to do so. And that's good because what stores were beginning to do is just produce unnecessary inventory. And when you would go into these fast fashion stores, I, I took note of this a lot. Half of the things in the store would now be on sale. And you would see like racks of the same product on sale because they did not match people to product prior to creating it. And that is something that we just cannot stand. There is too much data out here that says you don't have to guess. You don't have to just throw out multiple things and say, hey, if we have 12 products, maybe five will be a hit. Let's just do it. That is not the way to go. It is a waste of everyone's time and money and it kills our environment. What is better to do is use the data that's available to to say we crowdsource this in information and we understand that these products sell best in this region these products are most needed here and these products are a better fit for the people here so let's produce it in smaller batches we can keep the price points affordable but by producing in smaller batches and making the demand increase we can kind of begin to balance the supply and demand chain that's completely out of whack with fashion what i think is also helpful the only good thing that came out of fast fashion was the capsule collections because those sold out completely and it began this new phenomenon of kind of the resale market where let's say you bought something and you know it was amazing and let's say you wore it once instead of you throwing it away it now has some type of value in your closet where you can now resell it to someone who might have wanted it but found value in that and I think what we have to do is constantly create more value in clothing So by limiting the amount of clothing that is produced, that's one way to create value. And by using better better fabrics and, and better processes, that's another way to create value. And this is not the way we serve a consumer centric economy. You don't just overwhelm them with products. That is not helpful. It's almost like bad parenting. It's like no one, this method doesn't work successfully for anything, not people, not the fashion industry. You have to still understand the needs of the groups that you are serving and kind of customize your product lines to that. One of the things that I do think will happen is that data will allow us to be able to create things based on regional wants and smaller niche needs. I think that by doing too much mass marketing, so many brands have lost value, period. And now they're stuck with inventory that they can't move. So a lot of people talk about returns. It's $62 billion of of returns. Everyone knows that. 87% of those are caused by poor fit. 
But the biggest problem that nobody ever addresses, and it always stuns me, is the $50 billion of dead inventory. And that is inventory that never leaves the sales floor because people just walk by because it's not what they want. They don't care. They're either fixated on too many products, so they're not able to really zone in on, you know, what's on that rack down below. But whatever the case is, that $50 billion is almost neck and neck with this $62 billion of returns. It's a huge problem. And all of that just either goes to third world countries or it goes into waste. And that is a problem as well. Absolutely. So how do you stop the speeding train? And I'll give you an example. I have a daughter who is in her early 20s. She has an online boutique. She does not want to sell cheap, you know, Mm -hmm. fast fashion items. However, she also knows her market can't afford, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of really expensive things. And she also has to stay trendy because she's trying to appeal to this Gen Z um, borderline millennial market. Yeah. Well, I think from the boutique standpoint, because they're going to have the hardest time, it's, it's so tough to be in that position. And I remember being in that position when I owned a store, what you really have to do is go deep and not wide. So it's not your fault for sitting on inventory, first of all. So if you have inventory that doesn't sell, that's natural because you're not going to always know what people want. However, what you can do is implement tools where you're constantly hearing the feedback from your consumers. You can even do things like post things online before you wholesale purchase them to see what people are most interested in. You want to collect as much data as possible. It's bad to be in that position, but it's also good because everyone who is a smaller business owner in this industry now can create more flexibility than the larger brands. So they actually have an opportunity to build in things in their process and on their website and on their social media where they can collect the necessary data. They can test products to see which ones are going to sell out, which ones are not. They can communicate better with their their customer than bigger brands can because they are smaller. And you have to kind of be offensive with that strategy. Like we have to be on offense where it's like, okay, we may be smaller, but that means that we can serve our customers on a more intimate level than other brands. So let's set up ways to do that. How do we get constantly integrate the voice of our consumers? How do we also use the consumer data that we have? Like, do we have customers that are taking pictures of our products so that other customers can see it? Are we incentivizing them to do so? Are we understanding that, hey, our core customers are going to always want this? And are we communicating that, hey, we're not always going to give you the latest trim, but we're going to give you what you want based on purchase behavior, based on what we already know that you have and things like that. I think that you just have to have a strategy that is clever and that works for you and your customer and take a really deep dive into who your customer is. How do you tackle the affordability issue? Because I think that that's where soon I just had this conversation about um, clean skincare and makeup and that we're both Mm -hmm. trying to make the transition because we both love, again, fashion and beauty and want to do our part to be um, healthier and, again, to the sustainability, etc. But sometimes that isn't cheap and you wind up spending a lot more money um, and you might have to save up a little bit before you go in and buy that next product or purchase that really cute, you know, sweater or whatever it is. So how do you tackle that as, you know, 
a fashionista <laughs> or yeah. in a business owner. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, again, I think one of the greatest things that are, is happening right now is the resale market. It's allowing a lot of people who maybe would have been marginalized from some products to now participate in the shopping experience because of secondhand markets. And I think that it's also sustainable to do that. I see nothing wrong with renting clothing. I see nothing wrong with, you know, buying secondhand because some items you're going to like temporarily, but you may not always want. And then some items add value and you can always turn over that value to someone else or move it around. So I would tell fashionistas to be very savvy. There's a lot of um, third-party sellers of products and resellers now that are super official. They have amazing experiences and they get products that are affordable and um, that and it's more sustainable. So I would say, don't always, it's like when you, want to buy a car, don't always go for the one that's brand new. You know, it's okay for things to wait a little bit before you buy something and watch the value fluctuate. I would say explore all of the options for all of these trendy, cool um, websites and new retailers that are doing resale. It's, I use them and it saves me a ton of money because you don't have to worry about buying it when it has that super markup on it. You can buy it when it's more affordable to your budget. Hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, InPhase.biz. Thanks for listening. I'd love to touch on um, diversity and inclusion in fashion. And I I had seen or read something, uh, maybe you did a, a YouTube video where you were being interviewed where that was like near and dear to your heart when you first started um, yeah. your, your business. And I'm Latina. I was one of those little girls growing up in elementary school and then into middle school and high school where my body type was very curvy or the mm-hmm. average yeah. quote unquote girl. And I was yeah. on the shorter side at five, four and yeah. things just never fit me right ever. Yeah. The juniors yeah. department, forget it. And if yeah. I went into misses, it was a different story and the style wasn't where I wanted it to be. So let's touch on that and how unique um, fit technology is to really catering to uh, a diverse audience and being more inclusive. Absolutely. I think one of the most important things that fit technology does is to help previously marginalized groups of people participate in the fashion experience in a way, as well as to give them the opportunity to be represented. Because I think it's difficult when you have a body type that falls outside of the norm. And um, one of the technologies that I'm super excited about are the technologies that help with body shape analysis. And body shape analysis tools kind of use survey data of people having been body scanned. And it allows you to see people in different ethnic groups, at different heights, at different weights, all of these various combinations, so that designers can really understand what a body is actually like in a 3D, and it gives you a 3D avatar of it, and then how to properly drape clothing around that to enhance it. And this has never been available previously. But you can use these tools to say, hey, I want to see what a a five, 
for a woman who's in this region, who is um, considers herself a peer and comes from this ethnic group, show me the average of those bodies and what it looks like, because we want to make denim specifically for her. And then they're able to, again, take the same 3D tools, drape around that body and create products that are just for that body. And that's super exciting because I mean, the whole not being able to shop and buy things or see people that represent you becomes a social justice issue. It's like, is fashion full of elitism? If it doesn't want people's money, that's crazy because so many people are going bankrupt and doors are closing. Clearly, there's a disconnect between matching people to products successfully. And I think it's so important that diversity doesn't just come with representation representation of how people look, but how we think. We have to think differently. We can't do the same things that we've been doing in these design rooms where we're only catering to someone who's built a certain way, but we're trying to mass market to everyone. You have to at least know that this product is for a specific body type and this product is best fit for someone else. And I think that um, everyone sometimes hears uh, fit technology or sizing tools and they're like, oh, well, you know, plus size people have everything now. And it's like, this isn't a plus size issue. This is a size issue, period. Because the non-standard sizing industry is a $22 billion industry. That's people that are petite. That's people who are tall and lanky. That's people who are tall, but also thick. It's all of these people that fit outside the norm that have to be addressed. And I think what we're going to see in the future are niche brands popping up to say, hey, I'm going to tackle the petite woman who has wider hips. I'm going to tackle this woman who has a smaller chest because we're tired of blouses, you know, flouncing about and not being able to fit. And then I'm going to tackle the athletic body. And I think that is what we need to see. And smart retailers will pick up on that so that they have new ways of merchandising and understanding customers and say, hey, maybe the next time you go into Nordstrom, you'll understand exactly where your products are because it'll be arranged by body types. It'll be arranged by some of the things that you want to cover. Or if you want to focus on your waist, then you can go over here. But we have to start thinking, like, what is the experience of the future really going to look like? Because what's really most important to the consumer that gets them to the point of purchase? And it's not just pretty trendy stuff anymore. That's just a smarter way to think, mm -hmm. like a more commonsensical way of going about, you know, mm -hmm. a store. Like when I'm thinking of like walking into a store, like my experience, I try not to do, I do a lot of my shopping online. Like I would rather get it and then ship it back because going into yeah. a store and going through that whole process, like, and it's probably because of my childhood, really, <laughs> to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's just a smarter way about going, like going about it. Because if you're like, okay, yeah, I fit, I have wider hips, I have a smaller waist. I have whatever, whatever, and this is the section I'm going to go to, and I'm going to find clothing that's really going to appeal to me and fit the way uh, I'd like it to. How I, to I, build absolutely. loyalty, how to build customer loyalty. If there was a store that did that, I would shop there all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. You guys, this is what I'm like. I'm trying to tell brands this all the time. I'm like, let's just think differently. I know it's scary, and I know it's weird, but you have to think about what is it that the customer wants, especially – now that we've been social distancing, no one's going to rush back into stores to meander and just wander through aisles of things that don't matter. We need more efficient merchandising. We need more efficient processes in the store because even when everything goes back to quote unquote normal, I don't have time to waste being around people who are sneezing in the air or doing whatever because now we're, you know, everything's fearful. It's like, I want to quickly move through a store like I'm moving online. Mm -hmm. And we have all these tools. We have our phones. We have geolocation. We have tagging. We have 
RFID scanning and you walk into a store and none of that happens. And I also think that in the future, the fitting rooms will become a bigger deal. Um, I think they're going to have to be cleaner and more efficient and more effective. Like if you go into the Adidas flagship store in New York, everything's scanned and tagged and the fitting room tells you what you brought in and it tells you what size it is and you can communicate. That is a glimpse into the future of what retail is going to be actually. It's going to be efficient. It's going to be smart. It's going to be thoughtful and it's going to make the customer happy. So I wanted to ask you about some of the other technologies that I've seen and read about, like for example, the mirror that you can look in and it it shows you in an outfit yeah. without you necessarily being in the outfit or the AR apps where yeah. you can take a picture of yourself and then uh, online shop and, and try outfits on your, your picture to see how it looks without ever having to actually go put on the outfit. Where do you see those technologies going and what other things do you see in the pipeline that are cool like that? I think those technologies are cool. I think that um, a lot of people like paper doll scenarios. I think that um, the technology is getting better and better in rendering um, digital clothing. And I'm super excited about that. A long time ago, Ava Metrics were, was like the leader in the digital clothing rendering. And they had these really cool, very lifelike, like digital clothing. I think that's going to be a wave because take your daughter, for instance, if she could put a digital piece of clothing online first before actually buying it and see how people engage, she could collect pre-orders, then she could get it made and it could be a faster process. And we tell everybody, okay, this is going to be for your shipment next month. That's what's coming in. You can kind of now train your customers in a different way. And you have this digital asset that doesn't really cost you the same amount as actual inventory. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about all fitting room technology in general. Like I love all of these scanners that take your um, body data information and kind of help you shop based on that and shopping on silhouettes. I think AR technology is going to be fantastic. But I also think that if we have to stay in the house anymore, I think that luxury houses will implement a lot of VR I think that the future of luxury will be right in your home or you'll go into a store and you'll interact with the digital world that is not there physically, that where you can kind of explore a brand in a better way. I'm actually excited about that too, because I think that'll be pretty fun. That would be fun. Yeah, it would. <laughs> Absolutely. That's about the only place I can afford <laughs> those luxury right. items is, yeah. is in a virtual world. <laughs> exactly. It's like, I'll take this. <laughs> Try that one. It'll just be interesting to see what that looks like because using technology or, you know, retraining the attendants and people within the store to to be able to service you better and to get to know you as a customer better so that you want to come Absolutely. back in. Right. There's a lot of room for improvement in the shopping experience. I think we can all agree on that. A ton. Yeah, a ton. And that is what we're trying to advocate and help brands to think about is just like, you know, you have to think about the entire experience. This has been so interesting. Um, before we let you go, we have our hey. lightning round. Round. These are our fun questions that okay. we ask all of our guests just to get to know you a little bit better. And I will lead us off. The first one is finish this sentence. Okay. Women are everything. <laughs> hashtag everything. <laughs> hashtag everything. Women are we're just women are incredible. I will say this. Um when I, the name Luxor and Finch has to do with the duality of nature of women. It's about how you have to be sexy, but you have to be dainty. You're someone's mom, you're someone's daughter, you, you know, you're all these different things, but you are a woman in of itself. And it means so many polarizing things at once that you have to be. So I think it's, we're just everything. 
I wish that's really true. I love that. And thank you for explaining Mm -hmm. your name, how you came up with that. Yeah, (laughs) no problem. (laughs) All right. What are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self? Oh, gosh. Um, Do the things that you're afraid of. Okay, that would be the first one, because every time I've done something I'm afraid of, it's made me a better person because you get over a fear and that it it seems small, but it's a big deal. Um, Fell quickly and fell fast. Because once you get the failures out the way, success comes and you're humble so you can stay focused. And then the third one would just be, don't be afraid of your own voice. I think coming from the South, you know, being told to be polite all the time kind of is oppressing to your own desire to speak up or to speak out. And I think in a lot of different family structures, you know, you're supposed to be seen and not heard, but it's like, that can do damage on your ability to speak up for yourself and to kind of honor your own ideas. And I think that some, a lot of women have to spend a long time undoing that damage of being too polite. And so I would say, you know, don't, you know, speak up, like don't be afraid of your own voice and don't let anyone suppress that because it's important. We just went to church. We just went to church. Uh, (laughs) Love those. Those are awesome. Yes, I agree. And, and I think, I think a lot of women, just because we're women, we, you know, you don't have to be nice or a badass. You can be a nice badass. (laughs) Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Those were great. I, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. So much yes there. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? Um, I don't know if this is a text. Maybe I should give two. The first one is I saw on Instagram the other day that they have baby clothing now that expands. And I was like, wow, finally, we're in 2020. Because I was thinking about all the people who you have kids, you can't always afford to buy these very expensive baby clothes. But if you could expand it, I was like, wow, this is an awesome fabric technology that you know, is now available to everyone. So that's cool. My other tech for good, I think TikTok, because I don't use it, but I've been very much entertained by people just trying to create some type of camaraderie by doing dances with each other. I think with everyone being so separated, it's amazing that these things exist so that we can still interact and entertain each other and feel like we have commonality, even when we're all like isolated in our homes. So what issue do you most hope that technology will help resolve in the future? Um, waste. We have to do something about keeping our planet amazing for everybody. People act like they have another planet to go to. And I'm always curious, like, where are you guys going when this one's not good? We've got to find a way to make things affordable for people, mm-hmm. for everyone, the people that are creating products and the people that want to buy. We have to create these more circular economies. I think that I always say one day when I'm done with like this part of the fashion industry, I want to get into renewable energy and all those things because it exposes so much of what's wrong in these processes and all these traditional methods that are killing our rivers. It's, it's messing up our CO2 emissions. We just have to get it together. There has to be a way for us to exist being so high tech and wonderful and smart and to not damage our planet and where we have to live and eat and grow our children. What inspires you? It's different now than what it was before COVID. I think what inspires me now is just problem solving. And like, I don't like to feel helpless. I also don't like to see things going bad and not to do anything. 
So I feel like the inspiration that I get is how can we solve this problem? I love design thinking. I love kind of ideation and all those things. It is inspiring to see people's eyes light up when they learn things. And it is inspiring to see people kind of getting past their old notions and working through new ways of doing things. That's really inspiring to me, um, probably mostly because I'm a middle child. So I, I kind of have learned to mitigate all sorts of ways, but like I am inspired by just resolving problems. It makes me feel good inside. It's good to feel like, you know, that we're not just helpless in this world and things are going wrong. So I try to use that as a source of inspiration now um, because times are so weird. What do you want to learn more about? This is going to sound really weird, but I want to learn more about how to make each state more independent and produce at least 20% of what is consumed in that state, because I feel like that um, it's a way to create more jobs. And I've been discussing this a lot with my peers to get like pushback on it, but I feel like we have to go to a time where everyone, every state and region can be more self-sufficient. I also think this is going to be the way how we bring back manufacturing to the U.S. is if we understand how to create kind of manufacturing hubs that are in communication with other hubs so that we can adjust production in a way that makes sense. And so that like we can have more circular economy things on a state level and then on a regional level and then as a country. So what I'm really trying to learn more of is about the manufacturing process how we can produce here and like what needs to be done so that it's not so expensive and what needs to be done so that it, you know, we're giving jobs to the people who need it. Can we utilize the prison population without exploiting them? Like how are we going to get these things back here so that we can have a sense of independence in the future and we can, we can produce in a way that's safer for our environment and we're not dependent on foreign manufacturers as much. Describe the future in one word. Innovative, because innovation can be good or bad, but it's just we have to make some type of progress, I suppose. So I would just say the future right now seems very innovative. It seems like we're pushing towards something new that we've never experienced. And it seems like a lot of old traditional things are falling apart. So we're going to have to replace it with something else. And whether that's going to be fantastic or just be it's there's no slowing down what we're moving towards. So we have to experiment I hope to see what works. We do. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. All right. Last question of the lightning round. Um, fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. When. Mm-hmm. Like I like it. Uh, when like a girl. Yes. That's awesome. That's an awesome fill in the blank. I played sports when I was in high school and like, I feel like girls are competitive nature, but also are humble like how humble we can be and how gracious we can be. You don't always see that everywhere else. And I think we don't get enough credit for being so dynamic and having all of these different natures that we discuss at once. And I feel like you, you should win like a girl because when one girl wins, we lift our team up. We're very community-based. We're very encouraging. We're nurturing, but we are also aggressive and we can go out there and get it like everybody else. So I would say win like a girl. I love that. You can be a great Miss Badass, like we said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Jessica, you have been awesome. You've given us so much insight into the fashion industry and where it's going. And I think it's something that we all can relate to. So uh, really appreciate the education. Tell us awesome. where our listeners can find you on social media, where they can learn more about what you're doing and what your company Elixir and Finch is doing. 
Absolutely. So you can find us on luxornfinch.com. That's L-U-X-O-R-A-N-D-F-I-N-C-H. And you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And we're on LinkedIn. We write tons of boring articles about anything that's related to fit. So please like reach out to us if you have questions, if you just want to chat, or if you want to demo products, we're here, we're available, and we would love that. Thank you so, so much. Again, this has been such an awesome conversation. And I think one that's going to really open people's eyes to what's going on in this industry. And it's something that affects Exactly. And I think the time is right. I think people, you know, are going to be reevaluating how they're spending their money. And again, the sustainability piece of this, I think this is a great time for this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, ladies, for the opportunity. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.